Welcome to the Cheryl and Shirley Show. Today you have Cheryl and I'm sitting here with Patrick Tustin. He is a state senator in Wisconsin and right now he's running for lieutenant governor and I want to introduce Patrick and let him take over and talk a little bit about himself. Well, thanks for having me. I'm uh, Patrick Tustin, represent the 24th Senate District, which encompasses all of Portage County, a uh, large portion of Wood County, then goes into parts of Adams, Washera, Jackson, Northern Monroe County, and then now with the new maps, uh, slivers of a sliver of La Crosse County. And, and I grew up in Marinette, Wisconsin, right on the Wisconsin UP border, and I would consider a, a lower to middle class um, household. And and it wasn't uncommon when I'd walk home from school, there'd be notices on the door that the power was shut off, the water was shut off, because my parents struggled financially. But one thing that they taught me is that I'd uh, have a strong work ethic. And so I got my first job before I could even drive, where I bus tables. I spent all my summers in, in college going back home and working in different factories, um, lumber yards, loading docks to help pay for my education. And then in college, I started my political activity in 2008. I walked into the Republican Party of Portage County's office and walked in the door having never worked on a campaign before and said, what can I do to help? And obviously in 08, things didn't go our way. And I remember waking up the next day with a very bad headache, probably from the very cheap scotch I drank. But I remember looking at myself in the mirror and said, okay, we didn't win. What are you going to do? And I told myself, I'm going to get more involved. And from there, things just kind of snowballed. Joined the county party, became a chair of the college Republicans at UWSP, got involved in student government, and then went to my first RPW state convention in La Crosse of 09. Met this guy named Sean Duffy. And I uh, got to work on his first congressional campaign in uh, 2010 and just learned a ton when we flipped the 7th Congressional District for the first time in over 40 plus years. And so after I graduated high school, I worked on a, a number of the state Senate recalls that were going on in response to Act 10. And it's actually how I met my wife, Hannah. She was working for Senator Dan Kapanke uh, out, of, out of La Crosse, who was being recalled for his vote on Act 10. I was working for Kim Simic. She was a Republican candidate. We were trying to recall Senator Holpring, uh, who fled the state to avoid a vote on Act 10. And at the time, the elections were a week apart. The Republican uh, recalls were first, then the Democratic recalls. And so unfortunately, Senator Kapanke lost his recall. And then for the last week, his team came up to help us out. And that's where I eventually met my wife. And of course, we lost our race. So out of two losses, I got a future wife out of the deal. So there's a win in there somewhere. Uh, from there, transitioned into a career in sales, um, was still active, ran for an assembly seat in 2012, wasn't very successful. I lost by 21 points. But then the door prize was I was elected as the Portage County GOP uh, chairman. So I chaired the organization for several years. And then in 2016, had this crazy idea I was going to run for a state Senate seat that historically had no idea what a Republican looked like, let alone sound like. Oh, and the other thing, going up against an entrenched incumbent. So a lot of people thought you are never going to win, but we spent nearly 10 and a half months going door to door, wearing out the shoe leather in places like Wisconsin Rapids, Stevens Point, Watoma, Coloma, Sparta, Toma, you name it. And then on election night in 16, we surprised a lot of people when we defeated an 18 year incumbent and flipped a Senate seat that hadn't gone Republican since 1968. And so when I entered the state Senate, I knew I had a big target on my back and there were days the easiest thing in the world that I could have done was vote no, go back home and just kind of wring my hands and say, I tried, 
But I always took the right vote, the tough vote. So I think that helped pay off because in 2020, um, I was the Democrats' top target. They spent nearly $1.5 million to get rid of me. But as we know, Democrats are very good at wasting money. We have actually ended up expanding our margin of victory from 2016 when we won by four and a half points and won by nearly 13 points. And now enter the race for lieutenant governor because we have an obligation as conservatives to go back on the offensive, quit playing defense like we have the last nearly four years with Tony Evers. If we want to enact significant conservative reforms in the state that are going to propel us, not just for the next four years, but for the next decade. And that's why I entered this race, because I think we have proven we have taken a conservative message and have it resonate with a constituency that historically doesn't always view themselves as conservative. If we want to win a statewide race like in Wisconsin, that's exactly what we need to do to be successful. Well, it's quite the accomplishment for sure, winning a state Senate seat that has been held by a Democrat. And obviously, Sean Duffy, former Congressman Duffy, won. And that was a 45-year Dave Obie. And the Northland really went crazy over that. And it was hard work. I helped him up further north. And I'm really glad to hear that. And I'm glad to hear that you were active and involved long before. 2010 was quite an awakening. And the Tea Party Patriots, uh, that whole thing came out. Governor Walker get elected. Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish, who's now running for governor, and seen what happened to our capital. It was disgusting for a lot of people and it was very eye-opening. And I think that many people started paying attention, kind of opened their eyes a little bit. Plus we had had President Obama and that kind of opened people's eyes. The healthcare issue, that really opened people's eyes. So there's a lot of issues there packed in like, you believe that's 12 years ago. That's fascinating to me that 12 years has flown by. I'm really glad. And actually now I live in the district that you are in and representing and I'm really pleased about that. I was very happy to see you and a Assemblyman Krug in this area really does help. And uh, you're not that far. I didn't even realize how close that you were to being in this area. That's great. It's an advantage. And I think we need to look forward to that. I just kind of wanted to know what sets you apart from other candidates so people can see why they should vote for you instead of someone else on the ballot? So that's a great question. We've got a really good problem in the Republican Party right now where we have great qualified candidates who have stepped up to run for all manner of offices, whether it's governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, secretary of state. We've got great people who have stepped up to run for state senate and state assembly seats. In the lieutenant governor Republican primary field, we current we have eight candidates right now who will appear on the ballot on August 9th. And they're all good people and they have every right to run. I would say the one thing that differentiates me from a number of the other candidates is that I am the only candidate in this race who has ever defeated an incumbent Democrat. As you had mentioned, alluding to my successful race in 16, um, Congressman Duffy's race in 2010, it's not easy to beat and flip a long-held seat. It takes a lot of time, a lot of energy, and a lot of effort. And again, I think it what that boils down to is by having the right message, money, and manpower to take, take that message and then back it up and going out there and having these conversations with individuals who historically may not always view themselves as conservative or as Republican. One of the things that we need to look at is in 2018 and 2020, we saw a number of traditionally held Republican areas hemorrhage Republican votes for one reason or another. In some instances, it was individuals who were maybe tired of voting for the same person over and over again. Other circumstances, we had individuals who may have liked Trump policies, but not necessarily like Trump personality or Trump rhetoric. I think we can thread that needle and win some of those people back. I would love nothing more than to get Wisconsin out of this 
this constant back and forth in statewide elections where these races, whether it's for governor, U.S. Senate, are being decided by less than 10,000, 15, 25,000 votes. Wouldn't it be great if we could get Wisconsin out of the toss-up column and truly turn it into a solid red state? When we take a look at the two largest counties here in the state of Wisconsin, Milwaukee and Dane County, I don't think a lot of people realize just how many Republican voters are in both of those counties. A lot of people want to chalk up Dane County it's a lost cause. That is a losing mentality. We have to go into every single community and squeeze out every single Republican vote. And then on top of that, all those individuals who are kind of on the fence about Republicans, all we have to do is take a look at where we're at right now as a country and as a state. 50-year high inflation. Gas prices are through the roof. Not too long ago, I was going door-to-door in Wisconsin Rapids and had a gut-wrenching conversation with the nicest constituent I could ever imagine, who is near retirement age. She still works, but told me flat out there are days she will go without having a meal just so she can have gas to put in her car and go to work so she can put some food on her table. When you factor in the out-of-control crime that's going on in the state, where violent crime was up nearly 9% last year, Milwaukee's set to break another record year of homicides, gun crimes are up 60% in the city of Green Bay, the number one cause of deaths for individuals who are 18 to 45 is fentanyl overdoses, it's not working. Whatever President Biden pitched, whatever Governor Evers pitched that he was going to be a uniter, he was going to reach across the aisle, it was all a fabrication and a flat-out lie. All we have to do is ask the question to those undecided voters, are you happy with where we're at today? Or do you want to try something different where we are empowering you, the taxpayer, you, the individual to go out and achieve the best possible dream that you can go after and providing more opportunities and education for parents, making sure that we gauge the success of our public welfare programs, not by how many more people we can get onto them, but by how many people we can get off of them, because it means they can take care of themselves. And there's a whole host of other issues that we can tackle. If we have a willing partner in the governor's office, we can talk all day about things like getting rid of the state income tax or universal school choice, or making sure all of our voter election integrity bills get signed into law. Those are all great. They only happen if we win this November, which is why given my track record, given what we've been able to accomplish in the 24th Senate District, I think we can take that same approach statewide and help whoever our nominee is at the top of the ticket, get them across the finish line so we can actually govern again. Well, you hit on a couple of the issues that I was going to bring up. How did COVID affect your job? Because it must have been very difficult at the Capitol. The way that I saw Madison and I saw what happened to people that lived in Dane County, oh, every county actually, I was grateful in a way that we did not have our small business at the time. I can't imagine closing it and shutting down for like the whole year or year and a half or whatever is very difficult for people to go without like talking about a constituent that can't even eat one day. I'm very blessed, very blessed. And I'm grateful for that. Did affect my family too. It affected all of us. And I kind of wonder like what your job was like during that. How do we never have that happen again, especially to our kids because they're set back hugely. I just told you a little bit about some proficiency problems here in Wisconsin Rapids at the school, something that many parents are very upset about and confused. They're not sure what to do. And I do think it did open people's eyes about education too, which is a good thing. I think that's all been, that's probably the best thing out of the COVID deal, to be honest. In the state of Wisconsin, I don't ever want to see any won't ever be able to shut down our businesses again and take the money out of people's pockets. My whole point with that would be that there is some kind of a pandemic. COVID, if there is some kind of a pandemic, say you choose whether you want to go to a business or not. Kind of how I felt 
that it should have been all along. I know that you stand pretty much the same line I do. And so it's very frustrating. It was very frustrating to see people suffering, to see what happened to kids in school. And I talked to an assembly candidate recently who was telling me about broadband, that 30% of the kids out of their district couldn't even do their work because they didn't have any broadband. So we have to really look at all these issues that affect us, that if something really does happen, we can have something in place. So I just kind of wondered. There is no doubt that the government response to COVID and the pandemic was probably one of the most frustrating experiences in my lifetime. You know, I think early on, a lot of individuals, when this was fresh and new to so many people, we didn't know what we were going to be dealing with. And there were times I was going back and forth internally in my mind, like, this is nothing. Well, maybe this is something. And so I remember initially when, you know, a lot of states around the country were saying, we've got to slow down for two weeks to flatten the curve. And I think by and large, many Wisconsinites were like, okay, we can do that. You know, I, I had my own questions about it, but I'm like, okay, if this is all it's going to take. But at the same time, in the back of my mind, I kept thinking, well, two weeks, that's an arbitrary number. I mean, in two weeks, is just there's no such thing as this COVID, Corona, whatever they were calling it at the time. And then when it happened here in Wisconsin, I was really shocked about two days prior to the governor's first emergency order where he basically shut everything down. I had a conversation with his DOA secretary and I said, secretary, please tell me we're not going to have any shelter in place orders or anything of that nature? And he said, no, we're not going to go down that route. Well, as we've often learned with this administration, when they say one thing, you can probably expect them to do the exact opposite. To put this in perspective, March 17th of 2020, St. Patrick's Day, one of the busiest times of years for so many small business owners all across the state, we're told they had to shut down for two weeks. And then two weeks came and gone. And that curve, we were all waiting to flatten. There was no curve to flatten. And then the governor continued to extend these illegal unconstitutional orders, you know, week and week after week. Well, was really the worst part about that entire two and a half months of what I would consider um, hell on earth was that we were fielding calls into our legislative offices. I was I would be on the phone at my house from eight o'clock in the morning until some nights upwards of 11, 1130 o'clock at night because these very same individuals who were told they were deemed non-essential by Governor Evers, which is a term that to this day still makes my blood boil because there is dignity in all forms of work. There is no such thing as a non-essential worker in my mind. We would be having these conversations. Some of them, I mean, it ripped at your heart. Small business owners who were literally on the verge of losing everything. I remember having a constituent of mine whose husband owned several businesses in the Stevens Point area. She was worried that he was going to take his life. That's how stressed he was. Now, thankfully, we got them connected with some resources and nothing bad happened. The fact that people were waiting upwards of 33 plus weeks to receive their unemployment insurance and then to have a governor to go out and pat himself on the back and say they're doing a great job of getting checks out the door. When our constituents would call our office, we'd collect their information and then pass it on to someone at the Department of Workforce Development to the point they finally would call back offices and saying, stop sending us names. We are flooded. We are overworked. And then on top of that, to have an audit conducted after the peak number of unemployment claims. In that time frame, when we were shut down, there were roughly 36 million phone calls fielded to the Department of Workforce Development. 36 million. We're a state of less than 6 million. Of those phone calls, less than 1% got answered. That's what passes is doing a good job, Tony Evers' pandemic response. On top of that, when you take a look at the federal dollars that came in under the, the first Corona Relief Act, which was the CARES Act, the state received roughly just shy of $2 billion that was essentially given to the governor's sole discretion to use. It took the governor four months to spend less than 3% of, that, of those monies from the federal government, which was supposed to be for rapid pandemic relief. 
Instead, the governor continues to sit on hundreds of millions of dollars of cash from not only the CARES Act, but also the American Recovery Plan Act that he has now used as his own personal slush fund as he runs around the state of Wisconsin like the Monopoly Man, handing out crumbs to the very same businesses and industries that he unilaterally shut down with the stroke of a pen. So as it relates to the future of pandemics, I hope we never, ever find ourselves in a position where we take a one-size-fits-all approach, shut everyone down, when we should have done the most common sense thing, looking back on it, is identify the populations that are most vulnerable and take the steps needed to ensure that their health and safety is first and foremost taken care of and allow everyone else to go about their daily lives. Because the one thing that has not been discussed enough over the course of the last two years, and I firmly believe we'll look back on this 5, 10, 15 years from now, scratch our heads and ask ourselves, what the hell did we do to it? Basically took a gun to our economy's head and pulled the trigger. Badger Institute in June of 2020 did an economic impact analysis of just what the shutdown cost the state of Wisconsin. For the two and a half months that we were shut down, it cost the state roughly $178 million of lost economic activity per day. Money will never recover. To put in perspective for Wood County, that was $4.4 million per day. For places like Portage County, $4.1 million per day. And we're not even talking about the ripple effects of the mental health crises that we saw, the number of overdose deaths that spiked because of the pandemic, the number of alcohol-related diseases and deaths that we had. I still work for a wine distribution company part-time outside of the legislature. I can tell you sales were good during that time. Good problem to have, but at the same time, the social impacts that it has are serious. The mental health crises in our youth, what we did to our kids is unconscionable. It's all because of government overreach. This was not because of the coronavirus. This was specifically government overreach. That's not to say coronavirus doesn't exist. It certainly does. People have gotten sick. People have died. I have no individuals who have passed away from it. The broader implications of what transpired can never be undone. And I hope we never find ourselves in a situation like that. If I'm in a new administration or if I'm still in the state Senate and we find ourselves in a similar position and we're asking ourselves, what do we do? Do we go to lockdown, a unilateral lockdown? You better believe I'm going to be one of the loudest voices in the room saying never again. We have to have a sensible approach. I agree with every bit of that. It was probably one of the most frustrating, depressing, upsetting times of our life. I remember talking to my son and saying to him, I've lived through at least seven times the world's supposed to end. I'm still here, so I'm not really too worried about it. COVID, eventually I'm going to get it. It's an airborne virus, you know, and I'm going to be ill for a little while like everyone else that did it. And there were people that, that passed away and sadly so. But when we look at the effects, like you said, five or 10 years from now, the effects of the kids in school. We look at the effects of families that didn't be nursing home, people that didn't get to have their families come and visit. We actually did something that I think is uh, against anything and everything I've ever believed in. Closing churches threw a shock in me like you would never believe. I was stunned. The one place that you can always go for that peace and quiet and when you really need it the most. And there's nothing like going to a church in a quiet time and just sitting and reflecting and being there in one, realizing what's going on in the world. And then they closed those doors. That was a stun to me. I never thought that would ever happen. But you know as well as I do, Christianity has been under attack for a long time, and I always thought they'd never be able to infiltrate that. And they did. And we know, I mean, I know for a fact, this is how I feel about all of it. I believe it was all political in our state, especially. There were certain states that did not do anything, and they came out of it okay. I would appreciate greatly that you're elected and you're in this um, next administration that you would fight like heck to make sure that doesn't happen again because you have seen what has happened, the detriment that it has done to our whole communities. Could not believe when you said that. $4 million a day. That's a lot of money for this area. And I know how much I pay in taxes. So yeah, that's a lot of money. Unbelievable. So let's talk a little bit about what you have done in Senate. I think part of um, what a lot of people don't realize is when you have experience with legislation and you know all these people that you kind of already have contacts when you go into a different seat as like 
in executive. And obviously executive is different than legislative. You still have relationships with people, kind of helps you across that aisle working with them. That's both sides. I do think at some point we've got to get back to where we talk to each other. I don't care if you're Democrat, Republican, Green. I don't care. Independent, whatever you are, we have to learn to talk to each other again. And I'm not sure how to cross that. We've come to a point where sometimes, like you and I just talking, you have to agree to disagree with some people. You move on. I always thought that there was at least 70% of the, the items out there, issues that we could agree on. And now all of a sudden, it's like we don't even talk to each other anymore. I hope getting a new administration in there is going to help with that because I do think that's part of it too. The administration and how the administration leads. Some of, some of the accomplishments you have done in legislation. I know that we need to talk about the constitutional carry. Some of the bills that you brought forward are co-sponsored that would definitely keep them in mind when you're in the executive office. So yeah, that, I mean, that's one benefit. Having several years now under my belt, serving in the state Senate, someone before I entered the legislature, I thought I'd followed state government pretty closely. And then within the first two days, when I was in my brand new office, I still had that new senator smell to me. And uh, it became pretty pretty clear that I was just scratching the surface. I mean, it is remarkable that we're able to get anything done with all the different layers and all the bureaucracy that we have to get through to even just get a simple bill across the finish line. I've been really proud of the work that we've done. And you know, when we talk about we need to be able to get back and have conversations with both sides of the aisle, that's a, the exact approach that I took. Within the first month or so, I made it a point to reach out to a number of my Democratic colleagues and say, look, you guys think you have an idea that we can work together on? Doors open. And my colleagues that took me up on that we actually, they'd come in, we'd sit down at a table, just like we're doing now. We would define the playing field, come to an agreement on what I could support, knowing that there are going to be some areas that they probably can't support and vice versa. And we established that common ground first and then worked on bills. A number of them that took me up on that offer became law. I think one of the first bills that worked on with one of my Democratic colleagues was uh, State Representative Evan Goike. It was a bill to help transition veterans into agriculture, modeled off of what's been done in other states. We've got a workforce development issue here in the state of Wisconsin where our population that's 65 or older is set to increase exponentially by the year uh, 2035. And so if we're not doing more to not just retain our workforce and train up our future workforce, but also attract a workforce from outside of the state, we're going to be in a world of hurt. It's one of the primary reasons why think about this fondly when I was going door to door in places like Port Edwards or Nakusa or Wisconsin Rapids back in 2016, you'd have a conversation with someone. And of course, you always ask, hey, what do you do for work? I can't tell you how many times people look at me and say, well, we can't can't find a job. It always stunned me because even back in 2016, the largest issue faced in the state of Wisconsin was we didn't have enough workers to fill the jobs that were available. Fast forward to where we are now, it's even 10 times worse. My first session, I was tapped to chair the Workforce Development Committee. The idea kind of came to me. I was like, okay, I should put my money where, where my mouth is. If I'm out there talking to people and they tell me they can't find a job, well, then why don't I go out there and highlight what opportunities are out? And so we started what's called my On the Job series where, and I've done this once a month since I've been in office where, I go out and work in a different job in my district for an entire day just to show what opportunities are out there. If it's something I can do, there is no excuse why anyone else shouldn't be able to do it. I've done everything from construction to bus tables, worked in manufacturing facilities. I've done cranberry harvest, potato harvest. I got to be right next to a vet tech as he was literally shoulder deep inside a, a cow doing ultrasounds to check on how the calves are doing. Done trucking, even got a chance to work with the grounds crew with the Wisconsin Rapids Rafters and 
I will say this, it was the most terrifying experience I've ever had. They also had me throw out the first pitch. Now, I didn't play baseball as a kid. Thankfully, a neighbor of ours, he played college baseball, so he got me some pointers because the last thing I wanted to do was get up on the mound and throw a ball like Dr. Fauci and have it flop like three feet in front of me. Came time to throw out the pitch. I had a couple of the pitchers behind me, and I won't share exactly what I shared with the pitchers, but I said, boys, this is the scariest thing I've ever done, and there may have been some choice language in there, but thankfully, we got over the plate. The pitcher made me look a lot better than I actually was. That was one fear that was conquered that day. It's been a ton of fun. It gives me a much better perspective on how and what we do down in Madison impacts people both directly and indirectly back home. And I've had other colleagues approach me and they're like, would you mind if we do something like this? I'm like, do it. I encourage you to. This is, I did not trademark this. If anything, probably got this idea from watching reruns of Dirty Jobs with Mike Rowe that we can do to highlight and bust the narrative that you don't need a four-year college degree to have a good career is a step in the right direction. Getting back to this notion that here in America, it's okay to work with your hands. It's okay to build stuff. It's a program that if elected lieutenant governor, I would love to take statewide and go out there and, and work hands-on with our business community and not just our business community, but our workers in our state and show them that we're there. We're listening. I want to be the eyes and ears of the administration on the ground. Obviously with governor, it's a whole different animal. They don't have that luxury. They're surrounded by security. They've, they're being pulled in directions left and right. I hope whoever our nominee is will give me that flexibility to go out there and show what's out there, highlight what's out there. And then from there, use the feedback to start building policy ideas that can move the needle, whether it's dealing with workforce, whether it's dealing with talent attraction, tax reform, regulatory reform, to ensure that we're putting our best foot forward to move the state in a thoughtful and meaningful direction. Excellent. I thought that, you know, when you send out your Senate newsletter that on the job was one of my favorite parts. I heard a story, something about you working with bowls or something that was pretty funny that I kind of got a chuckle out of. So I really do appreciate the newsletters and I hope can get some kind of newsletter. I'm sure there'll be some kind of email newsletter from the Lieutenant Governor's office if you're elected. And I am going to say that I think you have done a great job as a state senator. I think you're young. I think you're dynamic. I think you have a, a great future for sure. I hope and wish that you are moving on, I, even though I don't want to lose you as my state senator. That's just my added on little, <laughs> little point here. People need to take a look and they need to check out who they're going to vote for. Become informed. Know who you're going to pick to lead us in our next four years, eight years, wherever, because we really need good conservative candidates that can move Wisconsin forward, make sure that we never go through some of the issues that we have gone through, and help kids in the educational department too, and parents at all of it. So I see here Patrick's priorities. I kind of like that too. I'm going to read some of these. Get Wisconsinites back to work and rebuild our economy. And when he talked about doing on the job, my husband's a plumber. He's been a plumber for 40 years, something like that. He works with his hands. He always has. Our son did go to college because he did not want to be a plumber because when he was 12, 13, 14, 14, he was going on jobs and it's 85, 90 degrees outside. And when you lift a septic lid, that's not the best thing in the world. It's <laughs> kind of teaches you, like you said, you know, you learn. <laughs> this is not what I want to do. There are great jobs out there and my husband's age group retires. We're not going to have enough plumbers. I can tell you that right now, even where he works. So Patrick's priorities, get Wisconsinites back to work and rebuild our economy. Build education pipelines to retain Wisconsin's best and brightest. Defend law enforcement and increase resources to protect our families. Stop fraud in elections and secure our votes. 
I don't think I could end it any better than that. I'm going to let you, Patrick, have the last word. I wish you the best. Good luck. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on here and share our our campaign and our vision and what we've done, been able to do in the state Senate. There's no question that Wisconsin is at a crossroads and heck, our nation's at a crossroads in 2022. And this is really our opportunity as conservatives to go back on the offensive because historically we have proven that when conservatives go on the offensive, we win. In 2010, conservatives went on the offensive. We took back the legislature and the Senate and the Assembly, got Governor Walker elected, Rebecca Clayfish, got Ron Johnson, Sean Duffy elected, enacted reforms from Act 10, Right to Work, Project Labor Agreements, Voter ID, Castle Doctrine, Concealed Carry, reforms that conservatives have clamored for for decades got done. And reforms that have saved the taxpayers $22 billion over the course of the last 12 years got accomplished. We have proven when conservatives go on the offensive like we did in 2016 that we win. When we reelected Ron Johnson in a very tough year, many people wrote his campaign off. When we delivered for the first time since 1984, our electoral votes to our Republican nominee in Donald Trump, uh, when we flipped a long-held state Senate seat that hadn't voted for a Republican in since 1968 in my race in the 24th Senate District, and more recently in the April elections here in Wisconsin, we had conservatives step up all across the state to run for local office, whether it was school board, city council, county board, county executive. Conservatives won in over 500 seats. Of those, 300 were net new gains. And so this is our opportunity this November to build upon that platform and that foundation that's been created going back to 2010, to 2016, the, the April elections here, uh, just this past April, and use this as the platform to retire Tony Evers. There is no question that Tony Evers is the absolute wrong choice for this state because we have a governor that is more beholden to the radical woke left than the men and women who make the state a great place to live, work, and raise a family. We have a very very good problem, like I said, primary elections on August 9th, where we've got a lot of great candidates. I know who I'm voting for, for lieutenant governor. And uh, if you want to learn more, I encourage you to go to my website, patrickteston.com. Follow us on all the major social media outlets, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you have questions, reach out to our campaign. This is an aggressive grassroots campaign. That's how I came up through in politics is through the grassroots. That's how we build successful campaigns, successful coalitions that can win. And so I'm asking for your vote on August 9th. Hopefully together we can uh, retire Tony Evers once and for all and get Wisconsin back on the right track. I certainly like the sound of that. Well, thank you very much, Senator Teston, for stopping by and chatting and just catching us up and letting us know what's going on on your campaign. I wish you well. With that, I'm going to sign out.